Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to part two of a special two-part podcast interview. In the middle of it all, new research on middle managers and compliance. And we're going to jump back in here, do a quick introduction of our speakers, and do the second part of the interview. As always, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Please get in touch if you have questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes. As we go through the holidays here and into the new year, I have some plans for some more special episodes like this, but always looking for feedback from our listeners. And we, as always, really appreciate you listening in. I am really pleased to have two distinguished academics here to talk to us about middle managers and some really interesting, interesting data that they came across in some some recent research. Uh, again, the title of the article that we're talk, going to be talking about today is Middle Managers and Corruptive Ret- Routine Translation, the Social Production of Deceptive Performance, and that was published in Organization Science back in October. We should also note that there is a second author on the paper who helped collect the data for the study. His name is Joao Vieira de Cuna, and he's head of research and associate professor of information systems at IESEG School of Management on the Lille campus in France. Linda Trevino, PhD, is a distinguished professor of organizational behavior and ethics in the Department of Management and Organization at in the Smeal College of Business at the Pennsylvania State University. She holds a PhD in management, which contributes to her unique understanding of ethics as a management issue. She has published many articles and also co-authored three books on topics related to organizational ethics, integrity, business ethics, and other related topics. She's been elected a member of the Academy of Management Fellows, And Professor Trevino has taught students at all levels and presented to many diverse audiences. Her views on business ethics have been quoted in the press, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Businessweek, and other publications. She's also appeared on television discussing these topics on CNBC. Her research focuses on the impact of individual differences in ethical culture and organizations. She maintains an active research program with current research that includes a focus on how scandal affects leaders in organizations and moral advocacy in ethical decision-making groups and emotions in ethical decision-making. Ethisphere has also named her one of the 100 most influential people in business ethics for 2015. The first author of this paper, Nikki de Neuenberg, is an assistant professor of organizational behavior and business ethics at the University of Kansas. She holds a PhD in management from the Rotterdam School of Management, Erasmus University, the Netherlands. Her research focuses on understanding unethical behavior in the workplace. This includes work on social status that drives unethical behavior, the role of social structure in moral disengagement, and work on identity and legitimacy challenges that ethics and compliance officers face 
in fulfilling their ethics roles, something that many people are interested in. More recently, Nikki has also started a project to examine the challenges that dyslexics face in the workplace and how they deal with those challenges. She's published in Organization Science, Organizational Behavior, and Human Decision Processes, Annual Review of Psychology, and in the Journal of Business Ethics, and recently won the Best Business Ethics Paper Award sponsored by the Journal of Business Ethics of the Social Issues and Management Division of the Academy of Management. Prior to earning her PhD, Nikki worked for KPMG Forensic in Brussels, Belgium, as a consultant in ethics management. So we're very pleased to have these two distinguished ethics researchers here to discuss their recent work. As noted at the top, this is part two of the interview. Please go to last week's episode if you haven't already. Otherwise, let's jump right in. One other area that, that's covered in the research is structural vulnerabilities, exploits, if you will, that uh, both managers and, and the rank and file can use, get around processes, get around tools, monitoring to achieve the goals uh, sort of outside the system, if you will. This is one that I, I feel like the example, going back to Wells Fargo, you know, Wells Fargo spends, their, their compliance spend, I, I would imagine, is, is pretty significant. And the frauds, particularly op- the, the account opening frauds, were not particularly sophisticated. And I don't know, it's hard to imagine locking down all the possible points of attack that, that are within an organization where, where exploits can be made. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what are some common misses, some things that organizations can think about to try to avoid that? I, I, I think, again, trying to address every potential hole is, is maybe not the best use of resources. Well, I, I do think that it's useful to try to think about what those structural vulnerabilities might be, although I don't think you'd have to spend so much time thinking about that if senior management hadn't created those impossible-to-achieve <laughs> goals in the first yes. place. Yes. But, but I think the main takeaway about the structural vulnerability point from our research is that people will adapt their unethical behavior to the opportunities that are there. So, you know, in this case, there were these impossible to achieve goals and there was pressure on the middle managers and middle managers are putting pressure on their people. And the middle managers, you know, in order to try to figure out a way that we can either achieve these goals or make it look like at least that we are, they start looking around and they know the organization, they know how it works. Mm-hmm. And they look around for those places in the organization that are going to allow them to do things to, again, either achieve the goal or make it look like they are. So one of, an exercise that I have my students do, and it's around more around performance management systems because those have you know a lot to do with how employees end up behaving and whether they behave ethically or unethically. And one of the things managers do is they design those systems. And so what I have them do is play the role of, I call it the evil employee, (laughs) who's going to be working under the system and trying to figure out a way to get around it. And just putting yourself in that role, it's amazing that you can kind of figure out what you would do you know, if you were stuck in that same place. So if you're an employee at Wells Fargo and somebody says, 
You know, even though the industry averages two to three accounts per customer, somebody says, we want, you know, we want your goal to be eight. What kinds of things might you do or might your middle manager dream up for you to do in order to try to achieve that goal or make it look like you can? What is it that's available, you know, around you in the organization to make it possible for you to do that? The other thing that's important about this point is that people are engaging in these unethical behaviors with concealment in mind. So this idea of, you know, can I hide it is very much a part of what we're talking about. So while monitoring is important, it probably won't work well to find all kinds of unethical behavior because they're specifically developed in order to hide them, remain hidden. The really big takeaway is that, yeah, you cannot make a rule for everything also because people will just find places. They're, they're specifically searching for places that, that, that do not have that rule. But also this opportunity that we're talking about is not so much in, in earlier stage of research. We use a window analogy. They're not open windows, you know, easy to break in, but they're windows that are easy to pry open and break in. So they mm-hmm. actually do things to create opportunities, if you will, yes. by trying to manipulate uh, uh, other departments' behaviors and, and things like that. So it's something that, that, like what Linda said, and this is what I tell my students as well, monitoring is important because it shows you, the, it shows employees that you're that you're paying attention, that you have rules, and that you care about those rules, but it's unlikely to uh, to find these types of unethical behavior because they take place in places that can be uh, taken advantage of, and very much with with the idea in mind of will this remain hidden? So I think a different type of monitoring, much more in person, will be uh, much more important for these types of things. Sure, sure, and uh, Nikki, switching gears just a little bit. One statistic that jumped out at me that I think is a interesting and a good a piece of good news is uh, even in the midst of this organization where there was the sy- systemic work by the managers to falsify the performance, uh, there was a lot of pushback from at least 40% of the employees uh, raised the alarm on ethical grounds when they were first confronted with these managers' suggestions to, to, to engage in this activity. They still had in their mind, uh, despite all of the uh, information coming to them from the managers, to the contrary, that the behavior they were being asked to engage in was wrong. What do you think are some important things for us to take away from at least that piece of information from this research? Yeah, so forty uh, percent of uh, uh, folks, uh, or really, you know, this is not how how I want to do my job, and I want to yeah. sleep with a clear conscience. Uh, but also, others were clearly still aware that this was uh, unethical, even though, you know, for self interested reasons, they were perhaps willing to uh, to cooperate still with the whole uh, scheme. Well, I think a, a big takeaway for me from a research perspective is that uh, I think we tend to understand widespread unethical behavior as, oh, people probably stop realizing that it is unethical. And so I think we're overemphasizing the sort of the, the moral blindness that uh, that that we've uh, come to sort of rely on in our literature. And no, actually, people can do bad things and be completely aware that they're doing bad things and be unhappy uh-huh. about it. 
Now, uh, there's not a lot of research that that we can that we can find that says, you know, how can we boost this or how can we make this even a, a more effective system. The only thing that uh, that Linda and I uh, can think of is really emphasizing personal responsibility with people and and to remember that they still have their responsibility for themselves even if they work in their organizational roles. But outside of that, an important takeaway is that situational pressures can just overrule people's moral conscience. So it's important to uh, to stop creating these situational pressures and just be reasonable with performance and performance expectations. Mm-hmm. And related to that, uh, Linda, one aspect that came up several times in the article around the research is that people tend to give up when these goals are set out of reach and when all the information that they're getting from their managers and is contrary to what maybe they know specifically know is wrong, with all of that information coming at them, it's, it, it seems to be clear that they're more susceptible to the processes that you observed in this case. Is that consistent with not only what you saw in this research, but, but generally? So I'm not sure that I can answer exactly the question that you asked, sure. but what we know and what we're referring to in that part of the paper that you read is there's a huge literature in management on goal setting. And mm-hmm. Nikki mentioned before how powerful goal setting is. It's, you know, I always say if we know two things in management, it's that rewards work and that goal setting works <laughs> to motivate people. It's just this very, we're, we're goal oriented as human beings. We want to achieve goals. And when you, when, especially when you tie goal setting to rewards, there's really nothing more powerful to motivate people. What I think is really an important takeaway from our research is that in our setting, even though the employees wanted to give up, <laughs> they wanted to say, hey, you know, I, I can't, this is ridiculous, I can't do this. And I think pretty much the same thing is, is true at uh, Wells Fargo, the other example we've been using. In our setting, middle managers didn't give up. And, and you know, we're not exactly sure why that is, except that when we've talked about it, we've thought that part of the answer might be that they're more, a little bit more distant, more removed from having to actually engage in the unethical behavior. So what they did, they didn't give up because they were, they were given those goals and their, their incentives were tied to how their people did and whether they achieved mm-hmm. them. So they put pressure on their subordinates. So, what we found was, what I think is important about what we found is that there's this multi-layer system going on and that there might be the opportunity for these middle managers to engage in what we refer to as moral disengagement mechanisms. So they don't need to take as much responsibility because they're not the ones actually engaging in the behavior, and actually the employees mm-hmm. can morally disengage because they're they can blame their boss. They can say, "Well, my mm-hmm. boss made, made me do it." So all of that might enhance the likelihood of unethical behavior. So it's this it's this multi layer setting with the, the lower level employees wanting to give up, as the goal setting literature says they will. They, they can't because their middle managers are putting this pressure on and they're keeping it on and they're ratcheting up the performance pressures and the incentives 
and the shaming and all of that combined is what creates the, you know, the behavior that comes out the other end. Yeah, and, and let's add to the, the threat of being fired, right? So there was also, and I believe in, in Wells Fargo, yes. also a threat of being fired. So, it, yeah. you know, matters to people often. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that will motivate. And then one last question on motivation on goals. Uh, you know, that's the through thread, obviously, to to a lot of this, Nikki, is is setting goals that, it seems to me, at least, the only other point that is made in, in the research is that the goals at the high level, when they're set, can't be abstract. To me, that seems to be the key finding here. Did, is that what, what you see as well? Yeah, well, I think what is important is is that upper management is appreciative of the daily reality in reaching goals and is willing to understand and, and hear concerns about the impossibility of goal reaching. I think, you know, there's there's some parallels between our organization and, and Wells Fargo that we have not yet talked about. And one is, is that the unit where we did our study, similar to how um, the community bank in Wells Fargo was allowed to operate very autonomously. Our unit was also very autonomous. As long as the, the performance looked good, you know, upper management was relatively sort of laid back in their monitoring of the unit. So there was a great degree of autonomy granted to these units and also creates space to engage in unethical behavior. But beyond that, what we saw in our organization also was that, they, and, and, and which we've heard in other research from, from many managers, is that there's a fear of speaking up against upper management. There's a fear of, of admitting mm-hmm. that, uh, that we, we can't reach these goals under our current conditions. And there's this idea that upper management doesn't care and doesn't just want you to do your job and don't bother us with, you know, why it's not possible. Just, just make it work. And that is a dangerous attitude because folks will make it work and will make it work in, a, in an unethical way. So I think upper management needs to be very engaged with lower levels of the, of the organization to make sure that they're not setting them up for uh, mission impossible, uh, which means that they need to be appreciative of on, on the ground challenges that people have to, to deal with, which may include those administrative requirements that are just too, too many and too burdensome, burdensome uh, but it may also include mm-hmm. just general challenges around, you know, do we even have enough customers? Uh, do, does our product sell well? And, and, and you know, do people want our product and, and all those kinds of things? I think it's a little confusing because when we teach management, we, we always say, uh, this is based on the goal-setting literature and hundreds of studies, that goals need to be specific and they need to be challenging in order for them to be effective. So I could imagine, you know, if we confronted the managers in this case or at Wells Fargo, they'd say, hey, you know, we set specific challenging goals. That's what we're supposed to do. But what I think we're saying is that you need to understand the context around those goals and whether it really is reasonable. People will be motivated by challenging specific goals, but they need to be achievable. And if they're not achievable, that's when you start getting this kind of behavior. And so managers need to understand. And 
apparently, in a lot of organizations, middle managers are not, they don't feel empowered to push back. They know that these are impossible to achieve, but they're not telling senior management because apparently senior management is either not open to listening or whatever it is that's going on. So somehow senior managers need to be more open to that kind of pushback. They need to, you know, show up and try to figure out, you know, whether these goals they've set are achievable. And there's all sorts of problems with with goal setting. And I'll say one final thing, because I think for ethics and compliance people, it's really important. And it's, they are rarely involved in the sort of design and administration of the performance management system. Mm-hmm. It's just there. And yet, that system is what's driving a lot of behavior that ends up causing them problems. Yes. So, if there's some way for them to become more a part of that setting up and the monitoring and the, you know, trying to figure out how their people are affected by that system. If they do surveys, they need to ask questions about that. It's really, really important to the culture because people pay most attention to what's measured and what's rewarded. And that yes. speaks to the performance management system. I think you'll find, Linda, that you're preaching to the choir in this audience about uh, being able to have uh, some seat at the table in performance management. But I think that's a, a valuable goal for for compliance and ethics officers and those responsible for compliance and ethics to, to lead to. Linda and Nikki, I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes with us to go through this really, really compelling research. I, like you, hope that this is only the beginning of uh, a lot more research in, into this area to help compliance and ethics professionals uh, not only move the profession forward, but improve their programs. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but I am always happy when there is more empirical evidence, more information that allows compliance professionals to apply the risk-based approach that we've been talking about now for several years. This research is, is particularly, I think, helpful when you're approaching issues of culture and ethical decision-making, the importance, as, as we all know, for, for example, it's, it's taken as a given that middle managers are so important. But frankly, there has not been a lot of research done that helps show that. And, and I think anything like this, the research that the professors have done, any other social science research that's going to come up here in the future that looks at this interface between top-level management, setting goals, incentives, all of those things that we know that we know intuitively are problem issues. And now we have more and more, as, as time goes on, empirical evidence that, that really shows this connection that allows us to make the case internally and externally for the necessity of taking a risk-based approach, the necessity of bringing resources to bear to make our pro- programs much better. So I hope you found it, these last two episodes of the podcast, this interview, helpful. Uh, in that regard. And I'm going to try to do more of this as, as we move along. As always, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. There are a lot of resources and information to find at compliancebeat.com, moreheadconsulting.com. Send us your comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, and tune in again next week. We are hoping again, as I said, 
to do more interesting and exciting things over the holidays here and as we head into the new year and kind of plot our course. So thanks again. And until next time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com. 